friends. Welcome to another episode of Next Presents. On today's episode, Grant talks with Chris Thacker, owner of Mr. Mowadol in downtown Toronto. Chris started mowing lawns at the age of 12 and thanks his grandma for driving him around to his properties in her Chrysler Sebring. He has since grown that business into one that is a leader in residential and commercial urban property gardening, lawn mowing, and snow removal. Chris is visionary, innovative, willing to take risks, and always looking to learn and improve. He has a unique business model and shares what's worked for him and what hasn't. If you need some encouragement and inspiration, you will love today's podcast. So here's Grant's conversation with Chris Thacker. Chris, welcome to the Nextor Presents podcast. I'm happy to have you on the show today. And uh, yeah, so as we get started, just tell us about yourself and uh, tell us about Mr. Modal. Uh, yeah, great to be here, Grant. I started uh, Mr. Modal about 15 years ago. When I was 12. I think I started like a lot of guys in the industry. I just went door to door, shoveling walkways. Uh, and I remember I came home, I think I must have been in grade eight, and I came home with 80 bucks. And I kind of just got that entrepreneurship bug and just kind of kept doing it that winter. And the business just kind of slowly, slowly grew from there. Um, my dad gave me 400 bucks to buy my, or lent me $400 to buy my first mower. Uh, I think I paid him back in like three weeks. It was kind of crazy. I was just like pushing a lawnmower around the streets of East York. And I, I even had like a client make me sign a, uh, a liability release um, at my first site because I was so young. They were like, oh, well, what if this kid like cuts off his foot or something? <laughs> they didn't want my parents to sue him. But uh, yeah, so I kind of got an early start in the industry. So I kind of went from that to my parents and my parents would drive me around from like neighborhood to neighborhood mowing lawns. My grandma would drive me around after school in her Chrysler Sebring. So I know a lot of guys kind of started like in the back of their Camry or their uh, whatever. I started in the back of my grandma's Chrysler Sebring. And, and then uh, and then I remember I was going to quit. Like I think uh, around when I was like 16 or 17, I was going to go get a uh, like a real job, go work at McDonald's because I was tired of asking my uh, parents and grandma to drive me around. And I got this idea to go get a bike cart. And then I ended up growing the business even further with that. I got a bike cart. Um, I did that for like three or four years while I was, uh, finishing up high school and first bit of university. And then my mother was worried that I was going to get run over by a car. <laughs> and she's like, Chrissy, I go get a truck. And so I got a truck and, uh, started hiring employees. And, you know, before you know it, you got lots of trucks, lots of employees, and you got this really fun business that, uh, that you work and live in and, you know, spend all this time growing. Okay. So what did the bike cart look like? Like describe that a little bit. Like what did you carry? How did you do it? Like what, explain that to the, to the listeners. Yeah. So the bike cart basically go, went behind uh, just like a standard bicycle. Uh, I don't know the dimensions, but basically we just did a 21 inch lawnmower in there, string trimmer. Uh, we didn't use edgers at the time. I don't even think I, for my first couple of years, I didn't even have a leaf blower. I was like sleeping off everything. And basically, yeah, all the gear would go in there, the gas cans, uh, and that was it. And then I'd basically bike from where I grew up in the, if any of your listeners are in the Toronto area, like basically like Cape and Danforth. And I used to bike up to like Young and Eglinton and go on these like crazy bike rides across town, uh, just hauling the gear. And then what was your, what was your ideal client look like for back then? Uh, ideal client was like uh, anybody who didn't mind getting their lawn cut like on Saturday or Sunday. Obviously I was still in, uh, I was still in school. I used to cut some lawns. I, I, I remember I used to cut a fair amount of class, especially like grade 11, grade 12 to go and cut lawns. But basically, yeah, it was uh, just like neighbors that would come up and, you know, I was just a kid on a bike and they're like, Hey, cut my lawn. There was really no marketing strategy or anything going on at the time. So basically anybody who was near an existing lawn that we service. Okay. Was it called Mr. Mowatall back then? Was that the original name? <laughs> Actually not. So when I first started out, uh, my first two or three years, I actually called the business. It was a neighborhood kid. Okay. That was the name of it. This and description? Yeah, it was a neighborhood kid. Uh, that's how it started out. And our slogan was Mr. Mowatall. And then I was like, uh, I, I kind of thought that out. 
the neighborhood kid's not going to scale as I get older. So yeah. I better, uh, I better come up with a new name. And I'm like, gotta go with Mr. Mo at all. Very good. So kind of tell us um, a little bit of, you kind of skimmed over a bit of kind of where the company's today, um, but either kind of give us a picture of kind of where, where you're at today, the service area you currently do, kind of the size of the company, what your ideal client looks like and some of the services you provide today. Yeah, absolutely. So we're a downtown Toronto landscape maintenance company. Um, in the early years, I always thought that maybe I wanted to get into construction and do all this other stuff. But over the last six to seven years, we've really just geared to the business towards a, a maintenance company. In terms of kind of the services we offer, we're in the summertime, obviously we do landscape maintenance. So right now we're maintaining about 600 lawns in downtown Toronto for individual homeowners. Um, we have a commercial slash condo portfolio that we do. And we also, we do some enhancements for them. But what's actually been quite incredible for the company is that we've grown a lot faster on our winter side of the business. So in the winter time, we're, you know, we're servicing just shy of almost 700 sites uh, between our residential and commercial clientele. And uh, basically an ideal client for us is anybody in what we call the purple zone, which is our service area, just because of various things that we do in the company. We're very geographic focused um, and like it even gets down like in the winter time to like a street by street thing where we're like, if you're like two or three streets over, we can't take you on. It's very much about keeping our roots nice and tight and dense. And that's been our, that's kind of been a winning strategy for us. Okay. So what would be, so let's stay on the snow side for a second. What would be mm-hmm. your, what's your geographical area? like as far as maybe kilometers or drive time or whatever, how do you guys look at that? What is the farthest east to west, north to south area that you would serve in the downtown? So our service area is about a 35 minute drive across. So we start over at Vic Park and it goes over to Ronsonsville's, um, which I believe is about 15K or so. And then we basically go from Eglinton down to the lake, which is another six to seven. That's, that's the area that we're, that we're covering. Okay. And in the winter time, are you looking after is your ideal client, the, your summertime client, or obviously it sounds like you're doing more than just your summertime clients for the winter. Yeah. The, the winter's kind of like clips the summer side a little bit, but it, it kind of varies. So our, an ideal winter client for us is, is a, is a condominium corporation, some type of higher level of care facility. In, in the downtown core in our market. And then we have, um, we have a residential customers as well. Even in the wintertime, it's highly geographically focused. So we're very much looking to build nice, tight, dense roots. Obviously we're trying to minimize drive time and drive time just gets worse in the wintertime. Okay. And then what would be the, how much farther do you go out for your summertime clients then? Um, it's not tremendously further. We, since we're running, um, we're still running some bike carts and such. Um, we're kind of limited on the amount of distance that we can go from our yard, but it's a bit, it's a bit further, but not by, not by a lot. All right. Um, what else do we, should we know about your winter business before we kind of jump into the summer side, which is fairly unique. So how do you typically service the downtown? Um, lots of asphalt, more concrete sidewalks or what kind of, what's your spec downtown? really specialists in sidewalks. I, I kind of noticed there was a gap in the market uh, maybe about five or six years ago. It seems that a lot of companies want to push large iron across parking lots, which is great. Um, there's definitely money to be made there, but I think that there's lots of opportunities in the uh, more detailed side of the, of, of, the, of the industry, which is doing sidewalks, doing entrances, uh, doing various different um, higher detailed work and basically in downtown Toronto we've got we, we almost call it it's it's almost like a cell network or a, it's almost like Rogers you know we kind of build a network um, of assets whether that be loaders plow trucks um, sidewalk tractors shovel crews uh, and because we were achieving fairly uh, good density uh, we're able to service a lot of our sites in a similar to way that a dedicated site might be serviced uh, because our crews are, are only working in a small area. 
um, they're able to go site to site to site fairly quickly. And the idea being that we're able to deliver uh, that dedicated like experience with, um, with a rooted price. So, uh, so that we're able to deliver good service to our clients. Okay. How many guys, how many pieces of equipment roughly would you have out during a typical snow event? Uh, so this past winter we had, we're averaging about 75 to 80 people, uh, depending on, uh, obviously snowstorm size, we would in larger storms, like a lot of companies, we, we kind of bulk up with extra shovelers and, and so on. Um, but we're running 75 to 80 people. Um, we're running about 25 sidewalk tractors. We're running, uh, this past winter, we ran four loaders, several plow trucks, um, salt, salt slash brine trucks. Uh, and this past winter we ran like eight shovel crews. So a lot of, again, we do a lot of handwork and a lot of that, a lot of the detailed stuff that nobody wants to do. Yeah. There's a definite gap there. So, okay. So let's go to the green side of the business. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more. We've talked about kind of the service area that you do, some of the services you provide, but what makes Mr. Mowat all unique in the summertime? Uh, I, I think there's a lot of things that, uh, that kind of make us unique. Uh, I, I think like quite um, right, like right off the bat, if you're uh, if you saw one of our, our, our crews working out on the street, you'd notice that uh, we do a lot of our lawn maintenance using bike carts. Uh, so we have a, um, like a network of dispatch points in downtown and we basically send our guys out on e-bikes using the same model that I found years ago. And we're able to roll them out um, to each, each lawn. They roll up, stop their bike, cut the lawn with all the gear. They all have their, their smartphones and stuff. They clock in, clock out, take photos. And like a sweet spot for us is that we're able to take people uh, in our industry that have, you know, I think we all know this, this symptom where we have like a, a crew and, you know, you got really great crew members. Um, but, you know, we don't really have enough crew leaders and we don't have enough drivers. And kind of what we found is we end up with, with a lot of, there, there's a lot of people out there that are on a crew who quite frankly are working for a pretty stupid crew leader because he's a crew leader just because he drives and we're able to put him on a bike and he's able to be his own boss and we're able to give people that autonomy. Um, and so in terms of stuff we do, that's different in the summer. I'd say our, our bikes are one, um, this year we're working on rolling out electric equipment, um, which has been fun in its own right. We do that. We, um, all of our trucks are purple. I think Grant, we, we know each other pretty well. I, uh, I woke up one morning, like six or seven years ago and I said, Hey, we're going to go purple. And so now we paint all of our gear, all of our trucks, purple. So we kind of really stick out when we're, when we're, when we're out there. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's great because you can see, like you do see it from a distance, right? And people know it and people recognize it. Um, and it is, it's really good. It's really interesting. So I do love it. So um, we talked about staff in the summer t- or the winter. How many staff would you have in the summertime roughly? So we're about half that size. Obviously in the, the wintertime, we, you really have to bulk up because um, you only have, you know, eight to 10 hours to get everything done. Um, in the summertime you have, um, for us four to five days, uh, depending on the season. Uh, but in the summertime, uh, I just did a count prior to this. We're at 35 people. Okay. Very good. And then kind of what is your role within the company currently then as, as owner? Um, it's kind of transitioning these days. We're, um, we're, we're starting to exit life kind of as a small business and kind of moving towards a medium business with different levels of management and such. But my, uh, my key job in the company is to grow the company and grow the team. I have four direct reports. I've got uh, my operations manager, my office manager, and my finance manager. And uh, I've been kind of reluctant to add more, um, more people that I directly manage just because I think one of the nice things about being an entrepreneur is you start to learn where your weak spots are and your blind spots and I'm not always the best people manager um, in terms of holding people accountable. So I've kind of been reticent to manage a lot of people, but uh, I just added my HR manager to my uh, kind of direct reports. And so basically it's just working with them, um, helping them clear the bottlenecks that they're facing so they can keep growing um, their parts of the company. Okay. Very good. So the main um, reason I've invited you to the podcast is because 
you are so much, you do not fit the mold of a typical landscape contractor. And that's what I love about you. Um, so really, I just want to kind of dig down into the innovation that you've uh, implemented. You know, you had a vision for it. You've purchased it. You've done all this stuff to be innovative in a market that could easily be a normal market, like so many other landscapers in even your, your current market um, in the last couple of years. So, yeah. So tell us a little bit about um, the innovation you've set in all the areas of the business. Yeah, I'm kind of like uh, anti-status quo. I just, I hate doing stuff that everybody else is doing, um, which I think can sometimes be problematic because like sometimes you just want to do stuff, you know, there's not always a time that you need to reinvent the wheel. The wheel works perfect, right? But, you know, we're kind of just always on the lookout of different things to do, different things to try. We're always willing to try different techniques and different things that come along. So, as I mentioned, we're, we're running bike carts and, and, and stuff in the, in our green season, which is obviously very different. Um, and everybody, I actually love going to conferences. I know we haven't been able to go to any in a while due to COVID, but like I tell people we're doing bike carts and like, everybody's like, Hey, that's a great idea. I, I should do that. And then they're like, but it wouldn't work for me. It wouldn't work in my market. I'm like, okay. Well, thanks for not stealing my idea. Yeah. Wait till I, I, hopefully we'll be in your market eventually. But we also just in the last year, just to kind of finish up on the e, on the bikes, we, we actually started putting guys out on e-bikes instead of just regular bicycles to make that, uh, make that easier for them. So that's one area. In the winter time, last season, we just began the process of switching over from using rock salt to uh, going towards liquid de-icing. So that's been... Um, kind of a fun innovation that we've been doing uh we kind of just jumped like right into it and bought like a bunch of gear and started doing it i had tried it a couple of years ago and it hadn't worked out um, we kind of just had done it on a small scale uh and it hadn't worked out exactly as planned but this year we went for about a hundred thousand gallons of brine um and we just did a ton of it learned a lot uh and this winter we're going to be probably somewhere between 60 to 80 percent brine uh, we've just ordered our, our gear for this upcoming season. And that's kind of, that's kind of exciting for us and kind of something different. I think everybody, probably most of the people listening to this right now are, are at least aware of liquid de-icing. It's kind of been around for a while, but it's really starting to take off. We we're now using the electrical gear in the summertime. Um, not much to report on that yet. We've only been doing that for about a month now. Um, but we've gotten most of our crews are in the process of swapping over to that. We also use software, so we don't use um, LMN or anything. We use something called Service Autopilot. We've been using that for seven years now, and that kind of runs our company. Um, but we use that. And something else that I think that we're trying to innovate on is uh, is hiring. Everybody complains about hiring and, uh, you know, not just in the landscape industry. I have friends in other industries, and pretty much every business is looking for people. My mother works at RBC and RBC is looking for people and they're having a hard time finding people. So it's not just us. And so that's another area that we've been trying to kind of innovate on and, and kind of find opportunities and see where we can, you know, maybe take something that everybody says is a weakness and turn it into a strength. So you, you kind of hinted at this next question a little bit, but can you share some positives and maybe not so positive ways um, in the process of when you've been implementing uh, innovation? So obviously it doesn't always work, right? Trying new stuff <laughs> doesn't work. And it's always easier to be a follower than it is a leader, uh, but you are leading in so many different ways. So, you know, uh, so maybe let's stay on the, let's stay on the positive side. So, you know, tell us some, maybe some examples of when you have implemented some innovation that it's, that's benefit, maybe it's benefit the bottom line, maybe it's benefit morale. Yeah. How has innovating helped your business? I'm very much like a 20 to 30 ideas a guy type of person. Um, someone once told me that you should tell your team that unless you bring up an idea twice, like two or three days apart to just ignore you. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always coming up with ideas and stuff we should do. And I think I kind of, I, I think that could be tiring on the team. So I know you wanted to start with a positive, but that's maybe a not so positive thing is sometimes you have too many ideas. And if you're a person like me, you're just like, 
going a million miles an hour and you're like, we should do this, we should do that, we should do that. And so it's kind of like, well, where do you choose to focus? And I think where we've chosen to focus and really kind of throw, um, like get some skin in the game, because a lot of this stuff does, you know, at the end of the day, requires you to put down some money and to spend and to invest is, uh, you know, most of the time, like I've heavily contemplated it and and we've gone and done it. So uh, like I was mentioning before, our bike carts have been uh, great in terms of our team. Uh, we're able to go from having two to three people in a truck to one person on a bike, uh, which is a, we find to be a lot more efficient, allows us to be more competitive in what we can pay them, so on and so forth. And, you know, even going into like liquid de-icing or some of this other stuff, I feel like you kind of just have to jump in. Uh, and that I think is a positive because I think you get like this atmosphere in the company where a lot of people are kind of proud. They're like, hey, like we're doing stuff a little bit differently here, right? Uh, and it's kind of breeds this entrepreneurial mindset. So I'm not sure if this, that's answering your question. Yeah, totally does. Yep. Yeah. It kind of in terms of just going about implementing some of this stuff is, you know, pick it out a bit, but I'm not someone that really believes in balance or doing things small. Um, I've always kind of joked around that, like, I don't really believe in work-life balance, although I'm starting to change my opinion a bit on that. But, uh, like, I feel like for some people like starting small works uh, with things, but I think for you to actually kind of see stuff and see if it works, you kind of have to do it at a larger scale. Mm -hmm. So one thing that happened that didn't work out well, but then we did it at a larger scale and it did was liquid de-icing. So uh, I got a pretty prestigious snow removal account about five or six years ago. Uh, it was a private school. And uh, we, we were like, hey, we're going to do liquid de-icing here. And so we bought the totes, we bought all the stuff, we bought all the gear, but we were only going to do the sidewalks. And of course it failed. Like we didn't do it. We didn't put enough effort behind it. Uh, I, I'm not sure if people have heard about Grant Cardone and the 10X rule. It's like you almost have to, uh, you have to set like these bigger targets so that you put enough effort into actually going out there and making stuff work. So we, when we first did liquid de-icing, we didn't put enough effort behind it and we didn't put enough energy and enough thought and enough resources to actually make it work. It was just like this afterthought. And then this past year we did liquid de-icing. We ordered, instead of buying a salt truck, we ordered a brine truck and we needed that brine truck to work. Yeah. And so we ended up making it work and we're like, wow, this works really well. So we figured out uh, what the, what the holes were on it and such. Now, funny thing with the liquid de-icing, we were so prepared to fall on our face on that because I had talked to enough people. Everybody was like, yeah, you're going to learn some bad lessons real fast. And you know what the surprising part was? We were so primed to fail on it in, in some aspects that when we actually got out there and did it and it worked, we were like, what are we doing wrong? Why haven't we failed yet? Yeah. Like we should be failing. But, you know, we also didn't go at it last year um, trying to like save money or anything. We were just like, let's go ahead and learn this. And um, we did your peer group and there's a couple of people on the call that were like really watching their costs and stuff and being super uh, conservative with like their, their ratios and stuff they were mixing. And we were just like overdoing it because we were like, we just want this to work. Um, but, you know, the nice thing is that our team is very, you know, one of our corporate values is to be, um, you know, to be adaptable and be innovative. And so everybody was all on board and everybody got, got excited for it and we made it work. And I do appreciate that about you and your team is that you have written into your core values, right? Like this is who we are. It is our DNA that we want to be able to do this. We want to adapt. We want to try these new things. Um, and when it's part of your core values, then people understand it when you hire them. So, which is awesome. So any other examples of maybe when it didn't work out so well? Yeah, again, it's just, it comes down to, I think when stuff doesn't work, when you're trying new things, and that's really what innovation is, right? It's trying new things, whether that's a new type of process or business process or, uh, you know, liquid de-icing, bike carts, whatever it is. Um, I'm not sure if your other listeners are familiar with Colby or whatnot. Like I'm very high on my quick start. Like I'm very much interested in trying new things. There's other people out there who aren't. Um, and they very much are afraid of, not afraid of change, but they're kind of resistant to it. Um, and they're very like, they're like, oh, this is just management's latest fad. They're trying this. 
And those people can kind of derail you if you don't, if you're not proactive and you make sure that they kind of understand why you're doing what you're doing. Um, if you're not giving them the why, uh, but yeah, basically I think it's lack of preparation. So I'll go back to like that liquid de-icing example. And it's like, we just didn't put enough energy or effort behind it. And of course it's going to fail if you don't do that. You have to really be bought in when you're doing stuff. Uh, so Chris, I want to just kind of, uh, we've talked a lot about you and your company and what you've done and all the things, all the innovation that you've implemented within the company. So I just want to take a, uh, you are industry guy now, you go to the events, you talk to a lot of contractors, you, you got, you've in a bunch of peer groups, so you, you know a lot of guys. So why do you think as an industry, we are so bad at or slow, or maybe bad, slow at implementing innovation or taking innovation into the company? Um, well, I think you got like your stereotypical responses that people would uh, say when you have this, like, uh, you know, it's such a fragmented industry and that, you know, landscapers were all these dinosaurs out here that don't want to adopt new things or technology. We're just set in our ways, but I don't know. I think that's changing. Like, I, I think there definitely is a bit of a bit of a changing of the guard out there. Like when I go to conferences, um, I'm no longer the youngest person in the room, which is nice. Um, so the, I don't know. I don't look at it negatively. Like I know we're kind of slow, but I think most industries are kind of slow to implement stuff unless we're like in a, you're in a really high growth area. Like we're not all Googles here, right? We're not all apples where, you know, we have an R and D budget, you know, in the billions of dollars. You know, we're a lot of single operator operators out here trying new things. And I think maybe what hampers us a lot is that, you know, even though a lot of people go to conferences and stuff, a lot of people don't. And a lot of people are just terrified of telling other people their ideas. They don't want, they don't want their competitor down the street to steal their, their idea. And so I think most of what I've learned or where we've been able to innovate is stuff that I've picked up at conferences and you're talking to people who aren't a direct competitor of yours and they're like, hey, here's what's working for me. Um, and so I think that's maybe one of those limitations. I, and I think some people do innovate and they say too small. You know, our, our industry is pretty famous for being so fragmented where, you know, your top five people, I think, I don't know if you know the stat grant, I think it's something like the top five companies in the industry only have like five or 10% of it. Like it's so fragmented and people have, um, you know, they're, they're just not getting large enough to really push these ideas out. And I think lastly, it's self-limiting beliefs. You know, people are like, Hey, that's not going to work. You know, they, uh, they, they kind of talk themselves out of it before they do it. They're like, you know, you know, for example, say you wanted to innovate on your, um, on your AR process. People are like, oh, there's no way my clients would pay up front. I have corporate clients that are gonna, uh, they're gonna pay us on a check and pay us in 90 days. There's no way to change that around. Well, hey, if you have that self-limiting belief, then of course you're not gonna be able to change that around. So it's all about, I think, your mindset and kind of just kind of getting past some of the self-limiting beliefs as well. So I didn't kind of you and I didn't talk about this conversation or this question, but as you've grown. Um, so because you've always had this mindset from when you started, you know, just with yourself to where you're at today and you're fairly, you're above average and the revenue, um, scale of most Canadian contractors right now, where you guys are at, is it easier? Is it harder to innovate when you're small or when you get to your size? Um, that's a good question. I think it's a bit of both. I, I kind of come from the school of thought that it's easier to run a larger business than it is a smaller business. And that I think when you're running a smaller business, you're wearing just far too many hats to actually be able to think and innovate and be able to, you know, the, that very common phrase work on the business instead of in the business. And so I feel when you're small, it's just not, you know, it's not possible or it's not possible to get enough scale to sometimes change things and actually measure the results because when you're small, you might change things, but then like a lot of us probably know, we do something different. We forget how, how you know, why it was good and we stopped doing it, right? Mm. And so that innovation is kind of lost in that. Um, so I think it's easier to do it as a larger, as a larger company, but maybe not too large either. Kind of that sweet spot. They say in business that there's a journey to a half million to a million to two and a half to five, probably that two and a half to five 
million range when you're going from being a small company to knowing what you're good at and really um, going into the next phase of your business life cycle. Uh, I, I haven't gone all the way past five and such, but that's what I've heard. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of when you can start innovating and you have the time and mental energy to go out there and do it. And you're not just, you know, fighting every fire. Okay. So you've given a couple small tidbits of advice to other contractors, but you know, what would you kind of maybe some high level advice uh, to other contractors that are maybe a bit hesitant to implement or innovate in their business? I think you got to get comfortable with taking educated risks. You know, sometimes it's scary, you know, like you're looking, say you're a snow contractor and you're looking at uh, perhaps doing liquid de-icing this year. And you're like, oh man, these liquid, this liquid de-icing equipment's twice the cost of what a salter costs. And you're like, is this actually going to work? But at this point, you're not necessarily on the back end of the wave. You can see that a lot of other people are having success. And sometimes you just need to jump in and try it. We're business owners. We're supposed to be out here to take some educated risks. Um, I think that you need to just do it. If you want to change a process, implement something, just do it. You know, some of the best companies, and I was just listening to uh, Jim Collins' book the other day, and they were talking about 3M. Um, somebody at 3M in like the 1930s or something was like, I think they were singing in a church choir or something, and they, uh, they're something holding their page, like a piece of paper holding their uh, bookmark, uh, kept falling out. And then they'd have to, like, I guess in the middle of mass or whatever, like, fumble through trying to find the, the page in the choir book. And he was like, I wonder if the adhesive here would, uh, would hold this uh, piece of paper in. And so they created the sticky note by accident, but that company created a culture where 3M back in the day was like, Hey, spend 15% of your time, 15 and 20% of your time on these, you know, unique personal projects, try and innovate, um, you know, just do it, just go and try it. You know, look at Google. Google, same thing as 3M. They tell their employees to spend 15 to 20% of their time on passion projects or, inter, you know, kind of what interests you. That's how they came up with Gmail and Google Maps. And those turned into huge uh, products lines. So I think sometimes you got an idea, you just got to do it, try it, and just go for it. And, you know, realize you're an entrepreneur. And, you know, part of that is taking some educated risks. And, you know, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You know, maybe when you're smaller, you know, it's harder to take that risk to go out and buy like a piece of equipment or something or try a different technique. But, you know, if you're not trying new things and you're not innovating, then, you know, you're just going to be like everybody else and you're not going to be able to separate yourself from the pack and you're not going to be building that value in your company. So just, just go out and do it. Do you think being innovative has helped your bottom line and do you think it has helped your service that you provide to clients? Oh, absolutely. Like, I think that, um, like, I don't want to get too deep into like our numbers and stuff, but yeah, like it definitely, it definitely helps. Again, I don't want to just, I, I feel like I keep referencing liquid de-icing here, but you know, liquid de-icing, for example, you know, you're cutting your material costs by at least 30%. Like that's an actual uh, thing that shows up on your income statement. But what's not showing up there is that you've, you, you've changed your product offering. Instead of throwing salt on someone's parking lot, we're putting down brine. You know what? We service a lot of condos. I live in a condo myself. Um, I got, you know, people have dogs. Their dogs are stepping in it. You're changing your whole service offering and you're solving different problems for your customers. And at the end of the day, that ma that's what matters. Um, you know, on the green side, we're moving to electric equipment. And, you know, I didn't set out in business to be like an environmentally focused company, but you know, the fact that we're going out and not running, you know, as much gas powered equipment and we're able to do these uh, properties using uh, kind of like a cleaner energy source in terms of it being batteries, you know, for employees, uh, we have some employees that are really proud to be doing that going out there and they're doing something that's better. And, you know, our clients like it too, because they're not, you know, quieter and they're not getting uh, all the emissions and people becoming a lot more focused on, on where their vendors are, are wasting resources or not being as energy efficient as they could be. And in the long run, 
you know, we're going to have to adapt and do this. So you might as well be on the, on the front edge of it. Okay. Do you think it's helped you with recruiting staff? Not yet, but I think it will be. I like, I think like we have, we already have a lot of, um, I hate the phrase millennials. I am one. Um, (laughs) Everybody's like these dang millennials coming in my company. They don't want to work, but you know, millennials are, are millennials and people can't see me right now. I got my air quotes, you know, they're very much interested in, in working for a place with a purpose, you know, um, they, they've kind of given up on a lot of financial goals in some areas, I think. Uh, and they're really focused on purpose. You know, they're like, Hey, what am I doing? And how does that impact the world I live in and the community that I live in and, and all that. And so I think if you're being an innovative company, you're maybe pursuing more environmentally friendly solutions, you're, um, offering them to do something that's different and better than say what the, your competitors are doing. Cause you gotta realize we're not just competing for staff in the landscape industry. We're competing for staff period against other industries. You know, like it's great. Hey, I'm paying like above market rages next to, you know, Jim down the street, but am I, how am I competing with like the, uh, like the home Depot or the, you know, these other locations, where are my indirect competitors for employees? And how can I give my employees like a bigger sense of purpose and a sense of belonging? And I think that some of this innovative stuff, like they feel like they're a part of something, like we're building a new process, we're building a new service offering and it's exciting. Yeah. Okay. Um, the one thing I, I love when I spend time with you is that because you're innovative, because you're always thinking ahead, because you have 22 new ideas every day, um, <laughs> just tell us what does the future of Mr. Modal look What's your kind of vision down the road and what are you kind of working on? We want to have 300 bikes on the road eventually. Um, that's our, that's our main goal. We want to be like the landscape maintenance provider for uh, urban and suburban areas. Uh, and we want to be that, that supplier of choice. And so really it's just a, it's just a growth mode. We're just buckling in. Um, my team likes to say it's like riding a rocket. Like, it's just like constantly growing, changing, innovating. Um, you know, right now we're kind of on the hunt. Like we're looking at um, perhaps some opportunities uh, to either, uh, you know, add some business to our portfolio. Um, we're pretty aggressive on marketing, but we've also been, uh, we did a deal last winter where we bought um, a snow removal company um, and we're basically looking at other companies as well. Uh, but yeah, it's really just expanding our footprint. We want to basically be across the Southern Ontario market and something of interest for me in some of the groups that I'm a part of is, is kind of this whole private equity world that's been entering the landscape industry. And they're very much interested in companies like ours. You know, they're interested in platform companies. They're interested in larger companies uh, doing commercial maintenance that's kind of where they've been for like the last 10, 15 years is buying up commercial maintenance businesses. But these private equity guys have been getting in into all these other parts of the industry, uh, design build sometimes, but also some residential maintenance, especially like fertilization weed control companies. And so something that I've kind of been learning about over the last year is that there's several games to business or several games of business. There's one, which is that selling your goods and services to your customers, which you know you gotta be awesome at. Um, but there's all these other levels of a business. There's the, um, you know, buying and selling of equipment. On our snow side, where we've got a ton of equipment, you gotta figure out how to buy and sell it to bring down your, your capital costs. Um, and then there's this whole other world, which is uh, the equity world, which is, you know, are you able to go out and acquire other companies, merge them into larger companies and sell them for a higher multiple um, where you're not even talking about the goods and services you sell. So uh, I've just started to become aware of that and it's kind of interesting and we're kind of just figuring out what might, uh, what might be out there. Right. So on the, on the companies that you're looking at purchasing, are you looking for that, that reoccurring revenue model that you can move the Mr. Mow-It-All bike cart into, or you're just interested in purchasing any, anything that is in that, in your industry now, what's your ideal, I guess, what is your ideal purchase look like? Right now, an ideal purchase looks like a, you know, hundred to 300 account residential landscape maintenance company. Um, whether or not they already have people on recurring revenue, 
uh, or like a monthly plan doesn't really matter. It's more, um, it's more about geography. We're very much a geography-based business. We know that there's a ton of value in being dense uh, and having a high density of clients. Uh, you don't want to have, like, at least in our opinion, like maybe for other people that aren't in an urban area, this doesn't apply. But for us, like we want to, when we stop our truck or our bike cart, we want to be mowing three to four properties at the same time. That's when you make money. Uh, it's not necessarily when you're going site to site to site across town and with all the windshield time or the, as we call it, handlebar time. Um, it, it, it's all about, it's all about density. So we're looking for companies that have high, high density and, uh, you know, have a good established uh, presence in the, in the area they service. So just kind of switch the gears a bit. So um, you do lots of reading, you do lots of personal development. I so appreciate that about you. Uh, so who or what are you currently learning from? Yeah, it's kind of been, uh, I, I do a lot of learning through like conferences and such. Um, there's a couple of conferences I used to go to yearly before COVID started. Uh, but in terms of like people that I, I've kind of learned from and kind of shaped the course of my business, uh, one is uh, Jonathan Potoshnik. He's been a massive, massive mentor for me. I don't think my business would be uh, kind of in the shape it is now or um, in the health it is now if at him. And we've, we're, we're, we're kind of following a bit of his model, which is a city turf model at a Dallas. Learning a lot. I'm in a peer group with about 90 other people. And I just learned a ton there. We have, uh, we have a monthly two monthly calls and we usually meet up four to five times a year, um, talk business. You know, you really are the average of the, you know, five, five or so people you spend the most time with and you kind of either rise to that average or, or sink to that average. And so, you know, for me, it's really about how do you, you know, how do you meet other business owners or, you know, other people in the industry and how do you kind of let them rub off? On you? <laughs> you know, you just learn so much and, I, I think that like being a business owner can be such a lonely spot because very few people know what it's like to run a business, let alone, you know, most people that run a company aren't really running a business. Most people are like, I'm an entrepreneur. They work for themselves. So they're like the one person, right? It's, it, it's way different than um, probably a lot of guys listening to the call right now where you've got employees, you've got equipment, you've got all this stuff. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, you're, I think the phrase is you're literally jumping off a cliff and building an airplane on the way down. Right. So, you know, it's great just to have that group of people that you can learn from bounce ideas off of and kind of, kind of know, know what it's like to be in your shoes. So okay. do you have any groups that you're a part of that are outside the industry? Not right now. I've been kind of looking at like entrepreneurs organization or if you are, pre I think like young presidents, I'm, I'm not sure. I'd like to join something outside the industry though, because I, as, as much as I like learning from, you know, all the great guys in the industry, I think that you got to focus on building a good company, not just a good landscape company. Yeah, that's good. Okay. And then what's one habit or book uh, that has impacted your business life? If you were oh, to recommend boy. one book to a contractor. Just one? Oh, one or two. Well, if you have okay. two or three or whatever, yeah. I know you have lots uh, of books, though. So. <laughs> I actually, I mostly listen to books now. I, I find it hard to like sit down and concentrate to read for, especially in the springtime. There's just so much going on. I think like a book that's really helped me a lot was The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker. And a concept they kind of talk about in the in the book is we, as, as human beings, we kind of have this idea that we're going to be happy once we hit a milestone. And in reality, that I think, as we all know, you know, we all wanted to, you know, if, you, if you're, say, a million-dollar company, at some point in your company's life, you always want to be a $100,000 company. Mm -hmm. And then once you're a $100,000 company, you want to be a $500,000 company. Once you're, once you're a million, you want to be 10 million. You know, it's kind of just growing. And so if you're kind of not happy before that, you're not going to be happy once you hit those targets. And, and so that book was just, I, I've reread that book a couple of times. It's a really, it's a really great book. It's actually like the most valuable thing I learned at, uh, at university. That was a book we had to read at one point. So. And I think most entrepreneurs suffer from that because it's like, that's what kind of keeps us going, right? That's a lot of times it's like just that drive to keep going. 
Um, but it's like this uncertain, this unattainable surge of happiness that, and a lot of times I know for myself, I forget about all the wins we've had along the way in search of that other, that other thing, right? Yeah. That, it, the next search of happiness. So it's like, I'm going to be happy once I have this, once I get the house, once I get the car, once I do this, I'm going to be happy then. I'd also say, I, I think this is on a lot of people's list, how to win friends and influence people. It's a great book. That's like one book I want to read again probably write like two or three times already. Um, and in terms of habits, um, some like maybe contrary ones. One I picked up from uh, my mentor, Jonathan, was to let fires burn. Because sometimes maybe it, that's not the best advice for everybody. But like sometimes like we got to just stay focused on what, on where you're headed. And, you know, you can get so distracted um, by day-to-day issues sometimes you have to let a fire burn. Okay. So, so what does that mean? Give us a good example. Uh, Like just a brief example of what you would let burn versus because most entrepreneurs are good firefighters, right? They pride themselves in the fires they could put out. So give us an example of that. So this is going to sound, you know, again, like we value all of our customers. We want to go in and do the best work. Sometimes you have a customer that's just like, you know, extremely upset. You can't make them happy. Sometimes you just have to get rid of them or you have to, you know, move on. You kind of just have to let that burn and, and move on. Um, there's other, there's other stuff. Sometimes you, you know, you can't get back to, you know, let's say a vendor or an employee or something for whatever reason. And you kind of just have to, you, ha- you have to, you, you can't let stuff take you off off your, off your purpose. You know, if you're, if if you've got a plan for your day and like something comes up, sometimes you gotta be like, Hey, I can't take care of this day. I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm going to let this burn for a day. Uh, You know, I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to be like, Hey, I can't deal with this today. It's just not possible. So sometimes you just have to let stuff, let stuff burn. Mm -hmm. No, that's a good one. I like that one. I've never heard, I've never heard that one before. So that was really good. So, okay. Any other habits? that have been impactful for you? I, you know, obviously take care of your health. Like I didn't always take care of my health. Um, I, at one point in my life, I was like 280 pounds, um, and like overweight and out of shape. And so I kind of learned through my network of friends and, and peer groups that everybody who is successful seems to be in fairly good shape. They take care of themselves. So you gotta do that. Um, question the credibility of the, you know, of everybody who's giving you advice. I think there's lots of people out there who give, you know, lots of free advice and it's kind of, it's kind of worth what you paid for it. Um, and beyond hanging out with successful people, um, you know, make sure you're focused on profitability, saving money and building cash. You know, that's something you you go to enough industry conferences and stuff. Everybody walks around and be like, I'm a $3 million landscape company. I'm like, well, that's great. How much money did you make? Right. Nobody top walks line, around saying top line vanity, bottom line sanity. Yeah. Nobody's like, Oh, uh, I, I may, I have a $3 million company, but I, uh, you know, where our profit margins 5%, mm-hmm. you know, meanwhile you got people are like, I'm a $200,000 company with, you know, 40% profit margin. Right. Like what's, you know, what's better. So. Yeah. Okay. Good. And then the last question is just kind of one thing you're currently thankful for in your life, in your personal life, in your business. In my personal life, something that I'm super thankful for and just a lot of people in my life that, especially like my other business owner friends and such, it's just just my mindset. Like I feel like I've gone on a mindset transformation over the last five to seven years. Um, You know, obviously I've been getting older at the same time, but just like having an abundance mindset, working on law of attraction type stuff, pushing, you know, self-limiting beliefs. I've kind of gotten into this mindset where, you know, if I say I can't do something, I'm like, well, why not? You know, like, oh, I can't run 10 kilometers. It's like, you know what? I should just go out and figure out how to run 10 kilometers. So kind of pushing your mindset and having that, uh, you know, that mindset where you can go out and conquer anything. And kind of from the business end, um, just my team. Like, I've got a great, great, great team of people. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great to come on here and tell you guys about some of the stuff that we're innovating on and kind of where we've taken the company and all that. But like, my gosh, like, you know, we're like this past winter, you have 80 people out there 
you know, it, it's very humbling when you go and find out when you get to have an 80 people out in the field, like you can't just go at, like as an owner, you can't just go out there and hop on a crew and, and, and fix things. Like it does nothing. So like the fact that we've got a team that, um, you know, has a pretty good, uh, we, we've got great attitude. Um, there's a lot of people that are like super bought into the company and I'm just super thankful and super appreciative that they've all kind of chosen to follow us and to, you know, kind of hitched their, hitched their wagon to, <laughs> to the Mr. Modal bike, so to speak. Right. So, yeah. But yeah. That's, no, and, a, that's a, yeah. And your team does follow your long-term vision, right? A lot of owners don't have that long-term vision or can even share the long-term vision. Right. So your team has, you've shared that vision. You've been able to execute a bunch of that vision and, and people are excited about that. Like we talked about earlier about this next younger generation, that's kind of more important than the, some of those financial goals that maybe we, our generation was more apt to like buying a house and all that type of stuff. So uh, Chris, any one last word for the listeners out there right now as business owners? Yeah, just try not to take the the road well-traveled, like try to, What's that? that what's, was it Frost or who wrote that line? It's like when there's two paths that diverge in the, the woods, I uh, take like the less traveled one. I, I, I always think that you should take that. That's kind of like a, a motto for me. Like if you're in a market where you're having lots and lots of competition, go find another area of the market. Um, and if something's not working, go ahead and try and change it. Like, you know, we're in business, we're out here to provide solutions. And, you know, don't be afraid to make that leap and go and make a change in your company. Uh, it's not always going to work. Prepare to fall on your face. Uh, as I like to say, prepare to grow like a massive scab over your face because you can get punched in the face so many times or scrape your face off the ground. But just be prepared for it. Grow a callus and, and just be prepared and go ahead and go out and try new things. Like, you know, what like a lot of the time, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? If you try it, you can always go back to what you were doing before, but don't be afraid to go in and try new things. No, oh, that's great. So again, thank you so much for your time today, Chris. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we're excited to see where Mr. Mo is in the future. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Nextra Presents. If you enjoyed the episode, it would really help us if you would leave a five-star rating and review the podcast. While you're at it, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. If you want to contact us, please visit our website at nextraconsulting.ca.